This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kristen Struer, and you are listening to episode 33. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Jenny Weiner, who is the author of a New York Times op-ed called I Refuse to Run a Coronavirus Homeschool, which went viral. I brought Jenny onto the show to learn a little bit more about why she wrote this article and the narrative that led her to write it. She talks to how she's approaching having her kids home full-time with both her and her husband working. And just a hint, it does not involve color-coded schedules and includes a lot of TV time. Jenny is an associate professor of educational leadership at the University of Connecticut, where she focuses on kindergarten through 12th grade. In this episode, we talk about how the school systems are handling the shutdown, how the coronavirus has further illuminated inequities within schools that need our collective attention, and how to show engaged compassion and grace during this unprecedented time. Jenny asks two important questions that really got me thinking. Who do you want to be to your kids? And who do you want to be in the world right now? The conversation is insightful, uplifting, real, and looks towards how this time can lead to positive change. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jenny. Jenny, welcome to the Illuminate podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to have you here today. I was intrigued. You wrote this great article in the New York Times, um, an op-ed about how you're, you refuse to run a coronavirus homeschool. And I think that there are a lot of us that are um, working parents that, and even non-working parents who are have homes full of children and for an indefinite amount of time and are trying to figure out how to navigate that and what that looks like. Um, So thank you for writing that honest article. And I know a lot of people in my circle resonated with what you had to say there. Oh, that's so nice. I'm so glad it it was. um, It felt I don't know. It felt like a different narrative than what I was what I was getting or what I'm used to, and so I'm glad it it resonated with people and gave them an opportunity to maybe take a little bit of a breath. I'm um, in a time where we're all feeling kind of panicked. So yeah. So okay. So you have two boys at home. I do. I have twin eight year old boys, Manny and Rufus. Um, and now they've been home. We we were, I guess. Uh, the early adopters of staying home because there was a super spreader event in Cambridge, Massachusetts um, at the Biogen conference. And so one of the teachers actually, this is before sort of everything shut down everywhere. A teacher's spouse was, um, was sick and had tested positive for COVID. And as a result, they said initially, Oh, we're going to do a deep clean of all the schools. Um, And then then the mayor came on and said, no, we're not, we're going to be closed for, you know, three or four weeks. And then the governor came on and said, no, it's going to be a month and a half. And so um, we were, we've been home now, I think about a month and a half. 
So it's a long time. Yes. <laughs> still alive. Still alive. But, yeah. Um, yeah. And, Definitely the new normal. And so both you and your husband work, right? So what do your days yes. look like? Yes. So, well, my husband is a, kind of is his own business, an independent contractor. Um, he does video production. So things have slowed down, you know, not unsurprisingly, but basically what we're doing is we're swapping days because I, so I'm an academic, I'm a professor. Um, and the kind of work I do, and, and maybe some people can relate to this is not something I can really do in short bursts. So it's very hard for me to sit down and while the kid, like in between the kids, kid duty, uh, write for 15 minutes. So I have to have sort of long stretches of time. So what's working for us right now is that we're basically splitting days. Um, and so one of us will kind of do the morning until it, we'll leave the house at like 8, 8.30 and then we'll be back at around four. And then the other person takes over, does dinner and bedtime and all that stuff. And then we swap days. Um, so we're each getting maybe like four and a half days of work, maybe a little less each each uh, each week so far. That's hard. Yeah, it's hard. I think every I think that's the the motto for 2020, isn't it? It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was the narrative that you felt like you were seeing around families that had their kids at home that sort of prompted you to write this article? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I would say I sit in kind of a, not a funny place, but maybe a a different place than a lot of people do in that I am a full-time working mom. I work in education in the sense that I am an academic and I teach, but I also happen to teach teachers and principals and superintendents, primarily in the public school system. Um, And so, you know, the people I serve serve others. I'm an educator and I'm working and my kids are attending our local public school. So like this is all kind of happening at the same time. Mm. So on one hand, you know, I get basically a day before the boys school was closed. I got uh, messages from my university Um, like many universities, that we were going virtual, that we are shutting down, we're going to be working at home. Okay, so having tried to do sort of effective um, online learning previously with adults, uh, because of snow, snow days, basically, and having that not go terribly well as an understatement, if any of my students listen to this, they'll probably be chuckling, Um, you know, sort of like me being oh my goodness, like that's tremendously huge, right? Like, so for my own sort of professional life and wanting to do that with integrity and excellence and knowing my colleagues wanting to do the same, that seemed really, really scary and overwhelming. Then the school shut down, right? So then I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, how anybody who cares about excellence in their in their job and excellence in terms of like being a loving parent and caring for their children, now I have to do both those things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking about all my friends who are teachers and principals and superintendents, like people I love so dearly, who are now worried about their own family, right, being excellent for them, being excellent in their job, and then being so desperately worried about all the kids that they love and caretake for, um, and their families and not feeling like they are able to fulfill that duty, that sense of obligation to them. And I was like, anybody who thinks that this is going to go clean, that this is going to work smoothly is is like co- like completely coconut bananas like this is not going to happen and i think it would be helpful if we just didn't even pretend that it would um because we're only going to add more stress um to an already extremely difficult if not completely crazy situation mm-hmm. and so you know so and because again i was sitting kind of at the center of that in so many ways i think it hit me particularly like the enormity of it just hit me 
um, all at once, if that makes sense. Yep. It does. And so, yeah. And so I just was like, I could pretend and try to engage in a way that's just going to make me feel bad and probably end up feeling, making my kids feel bad. Or I could try to figure out like, who do I want to be right now to them? And who do I want to be in the world right now? And try to live that out. Mm, um, I love, I love the, those two questions. Who do you want to be to your kids? And then who do you want to be in the world right now? It's, that's a good way to step back and think through what that should look like. Yeah. And, you know, and then there's also the complexity of uh, one of my kids having disability and getting quite a bit of services at his school so that, you know, just to make school um, positive for him takes a lot of caring adults working full time, not just Mm -hmm. one teacher in one classroom, right? Like it's a complete community of adults and services to facilitate him feeling good and capable and ready to learn. So that also obviously complicates things. Because I knew I also don't have a kid. My, my other son is in regular, but of course, he loves his teacher and his friends and his PE teacher and, you know, all the other people that make this work, the lunch woman who's always super kind to him, mm-hmm. librarians. And I was like, I'm not all of the, those people. And also, like, they're professionally trained to do this. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, what is a realistic expectation um, for this adventure that we are going on together? And do I want it to be fighting? You know, do I want it to be um, ugly? Do I want it to be frustration? And um, I didn't. So that helped, you know, that helped um, to kind of say what you said, take a step back. What do I want right now? What do I think is best for my family? And I'm just going to try to go for it. Mm-hmm. So you're, so I'm interested to learn a little bit more about sure. the services for your son. So I, I, my, I work for Special Olympics International. Oh, wonderful. Um, and so we work with people with intellectual disabilities. So very familiar with sort of the different kinds of service offerings. Sure. So what, what is your son getting in school? And then is there anything you feel like you can provide to him now? Yeah. So, um, I'm very, I'm lucky in the sense that my son's needs are primarily emotional and behavioral. Um, and I say lucky because he loves to read. He can access sort of content very um, capably. Um, that's not where the issues are. The issues are managing his emotions, his frustration, his anger, um, his coping mechanisms. And so he gets, and, and usually to be honest in peer to peer interactions. So, since he's not having so many peer-to-peer interactions, most of the frustration comes with me or his brother or his father or um, himself. And most of the services that we get, oh, and he also has to get some like OT for handwriting and th- things like that. Um, sorry. Um, um, so that's hard because um, the services that we get are counseling, group, group therapy, um, sort of mindfulness, um, other strategies to help him manage his resilience and emotional kind of well-being. Um, and of course we have no access to any of those right now. Sure. Yeah. Um, And I feel like those things done virtually just don't have the same effect. No, I mean, most of the therapy, because he's still a little kid, you know, a lot of the therapeutic elements of his experience are play-based for those, for those people who, who know. So he does plays a lot of games and, and does a lot of simulation and works with other kids. And, and of course we, 
that's that's not that can't happen, right? It's quite artificial in a on a computer screen. So, you know, I mean, again, the the good the good news is is that we, you know, he can yell and stomp at home um, without really disturbing anybody except for us, right? Like it doesn't, it's not going to cause him to, you know, be disciplined or, you know, lose his, lose, lose his privileges at recess. Yeah. But it is, it is an additional complication in terms of trying to think about what like, you know, homeschool could look like. Um, and again, how do we want to, how do we want our family life to look for the next, however long it's going to be? Mm-hmm. Have they canceled schools in Boston through the school year? No, hypothetically, we're still like May 4th. But to be honest, I mean, I'm sort of behaving as if it's um, it's going to be done. Yeah, they canceled um, ours, I guess, two days ago in Indianapolis for the rest of the school year. They did. They did. Oh. But I think, you know, the other thing is, is that there's I have a fear, right, of even when this does get lifted, sending sending your kids back out in the world right when there's the virus is still going to exist in some ways I know it's it is it's very scary you know I'm trying I don't know I think probably like all of us right we're trying to balance between sort of justified terror Mm -hmm. um and courage and also not you know trying to also think about at least I have like how scared do I want my kids to be um, because, uh, that's a lot to hold, right? Like as a parent, you're, and I think as a teacher too, right. You're, you're not just holding your own emotional kind of well-being and state. You're thinking about the degree to which those emotions may like seep out or spill over or impact your little ones mm-hmm. or your colleagues or your, you know, the teachers that you, that you're serving. So, I try to think a lot about like, not my own fears, but like who, like resilient kids, what messages can I send them about again, like where we are in the world so that they're, they're brave, but they're also smart about it. And that's Mm -hmm. been, I mean, that's terribly hard to negotiate. Talk about like care work, my goodness. You know, I mean, I'm trying to frame a lot of this as like, we're being heroes or we're being, um, we're serving by staying home, right? Like we don't have to be frightened. We're not sick. Our family's not sick, but we're making sure that other people are staying well. And we're doing that by listening and staying home, even though we'd like to see our friends and our grandma and our grandpa and our cousins and, you know, Yeah. but it's, it's, yeah, I, I completely, I completely empathize with that. I, I feel the same way. We have a three-year-old and he, you know, he gets it, he gets it to an extent, right? So he knows that school, his daycare is closed and he can't see his friends and he can't go to the playground and everything's because of the coronavirus. And, you know, he'll talk about that. And so whenever he asks to go somewhere and we're like, well, we can't go there. And he's like, oh, it's closed because of the coronavirus. And then the other day he had his little, his blanket that he takes to daycare. I had washed it and he pulled it out of the dryer and said, oh, mommy, can I put this on the stairs um, so that in a couple days when the coronavirus goes away, I can take it back to school? And it just broke my heart because, you know, and it's like you can, but it's definitely not going to be a couple days. And it's just it's hard. It's definitely hard for on the, the kids. I mean, he has certainly acted out a little bit during this. 
uh, it's such a change, right? His whole routine is turned upside down for a kid who thrives on routine and especially at an age that routine's so important. And we're also navigating, we have a newborn, so we're trying to navigate all those things at once. So we just, it just, it's hard. It's so hard for him and trying to figure out what that should look like and how we can find the right balance and, you know, what kind of activities to do for him. And we're not, we're not teachers either. We don't have that expertise. So how can we find something that gives him the, some engagement, but, um, also keeps our sanity? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't, this is maybe ultimately unhelpful, but I, I think what's so hard, right. I mean, what's so hard and difficult is the degree of uncertainty. Um, I mean, there's so many things that are hard, right. But one big thing is uncertainty because with uncertainty, um, comes anxiety, confusion, and it's hard, it's really hard to manage that. And I would say what's really hard about uncertainty too, is there are no clear answers, right? So it's not, you know, somebody could come and show up and give you a schedule for your son, and it could go great for day one and two. And then day three, it's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Right? Or you, so you know, my philosophy, and again, I'm, you know, I'm a mom, a working mom, I'm not a child parenting expert, but I mean, is really just do the best, like, just try to do the best you can and be, you know, give yourself some grace because we're dealing with something that nobody has dealt with before. Um, And there are no benchmarks. There are no markers of how to do this. And anybody who's pretending that there is, I just, I I mean, even if they were an expert homeschooler, they were not dealing also with the coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. Like the anxiety and disorientation of that. So I think the best thing we can do is to just be loving to them and to ourselves and be okay with a terrible day. Um, be okay with the acting out, be okay with that and and just try your best because I, at least I don't know what else really to do um, yeah. uh, in, in this time. And I feel like, you know, when we start creating all these standards of what things should look like, I think that's when we hurt ourselves. Like that's where like you can really hurt yourself or create something toxic. Um, and I've seen that, you know, I see that often in terms of women, women working and sort of the uh, expectations placed on them to do everything. Well, it just feels, I don't know, just doesn't feel like a road that is useful or helpful to go down. Yeah. I know I try to say like the two things I'm like, okay, every day I need to just exhibit patience with everybody in our house, right? <laughs> Yourself included, yes, I hope. Is on yes, yes, exactly. Okay. And then just also try mm-hmm. to find the gratefulness because we are lucky that we have a situation where we can <clears throat> social distance, right? There's a lot of communities and people that aren't able to do that. And so um, trying to be grateful that we can do that. Um, and that we have a shelter to do so and that we have access to food and, you know, all of those things. So for me, that's like the start of every day. Like these are the two things, patience and gratefulness. And, um, you know, it's just, we don't know when this is going to end. It's going to end at some point. We just don't know. And then we don't know what the new world order is going to look like. It's going to be different. It's not going to be the same. Yeah. And I love, I love how you were thinking about it in the context of I would say gratitude and also, you know, thinking about it in terms of gratitude and and compassion for others as a result, right? So, you know, I'm hearing very mixed things about how people are responding to educators in their own spaces, right? So I've, you know, I've heard stories of parents demanding things or, um, 
feeling like, you know, why aren't the teachers doing their jobs or wanting, you know, wanting tons of materials and new materials every day. And, and I'm just also kind of thinking about compassion that you're activating for yourself, for other parents and working parents and, you know, teachers who, you know, still 86% are, are white women and middle-class white women. And I think there's something like 88 is are um, women and many of them are moms also. So, you know, they're negotiating the same thing we are trying to do everything excellently without a script. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just trying to think about when we are demanding or criticizing others for their responses um, or what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, I think that that's bringing in a level of sort of unhelpfulness also, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know. I've seen, I've also seen a lot of wonderful things. Like I have to say that my son's teachers have been absolutely fantastic beyond fantastic. Um, but I, I do think that's, you know, the sense of kind of collective compassion and empathy is an important one. And one I hope, I hope will continue um, post Corona, the post Corona days. Yeah. And that's, you know, what is the silver lining of it? And I think that some of, you know, that compassion and then some of the community building and the way people are connecting in different ways. I hope that that does continue and that, that there's this positivity that stems from a a terrible situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of my hopes is to even go for, to be honest, is to even, I have no idea what it's going to look like. I think it's hard to prognosticate Mm -hmm. right now, but, um, but I do hope that the compassion can turn to advocacy, right? Because I think one of the really things that's been important to me to kind of think about during this time is that coronavirus didn't create the inequities, right? It didn't create um, the unreasonable expectations for working moms or for, I think, probably moms in general or working parents or, you know, dads who want to be there more frequently or have some kind of work-life more balance in their life. I think that these things are exacerbated by the crisis and or illuminated, let's say, further. And so that we could think about that when we move forward is to sort of say, okay, we're out of this, which inevitably we will be, I believe that. Um, But then how can we change the structures and systems so that when God forbid something else happens or people are needing something, um, that we have fought for hard for that to change things like family leave policies or how schools are funded or how much their teachers are paid or distribution of resources or whatever the case may be, right? That, mm-hmm. that you know, that will help the whole society rise as opposed to just feeling like we're in a, you know, we are in a more loving, empathetic state um, as a family or as a small community um, so that, you know, um, we can move forward together. So I've been thinking, I've been trying to kind of think about that you know, what, what has it done for me? It's made it, sorry, what has coronavirus done? But it's illuminated, further illuminated, let's say, some of these inequities that I think need atten- our collective attention and advocacy to, to address. Yeah, I think that's right on. Now, in your, in your day job, so you are a researcher and have done a lot of work around education reform. Tell me a little bit about that and what your what your area of expertise is and even how the coronavirus has touched some of that work. Sure, sure. So I do a lot of things. I would say that I'm sort of an organizational scholar. So I think about sort of how organizations change and grow and how the the adults really, the professional culture can be created to 
enable people to do their best work. So I'm, I'm a uh, professor of educational leadership. Um, and recently, a lot of my research has looked at sort of women in, in leadership and how sort of gender discrimination and racial discrimination plays a role in their access to success in and decision to stay within leadership within the K-12 context. Um, so that's just like a little bit about me. But in terms of this time, I think what's really been fascinating is I've long advocated or a lot of my work is really about thinking about reframing leadership itself, again, within the context of K-12 organizations as creating conditions for other people to thrive and learn as opposed to sort of a model of a great leader telling people what to do um, or demanding people do things or, you know, sort of get behind me and let's charge forward. Um, and really putting things like empathy, trust, uh, uh, mistakes, um, courage at the center of how we think about leadership. And I think that this is a time, you know, in terms of COVID, thinking about, you know, who who are we getting our comfort from? Who are, have kind of risen as leaders within the space? And what are the kind of characteristics that have facilitated your ability to feel better by hearing them, connecting with them, um, and that doesn't even mean somebody in a positional authority, like, you know, a public official. It could be a friend who is sending, you know, text messages to everyone and saying, I'm thinking of you. I care about you. Um, I remember you. Um, and how that kind of that kind of leadership in many ways is what we what I think we need right now um, and how that can manifest um, in schools and school systems is what I would love to see come moving forward. Wow, that's interesting. And are you doing, I mean, are you working with the school systems to kind of foster that leadership model? I do. I mean, I, so one thing I do um, during the day is I help facilitate, there's a women's um, group of Connecticut superintendents and I work with them and facilitate discussions for them about, you know, how can they be their true authentic selves within a context of racial and discrimination and gender discrimination? How do we work together to reframe leadership? So I work in, you know, training programs for principals around school change and reform. And I really try to emphasize the idea that adults um, need help learning too. You know, like we would never demand of kids. We would never say to a kid, well, you know, I offered them one two hour seminar. Like, why aren't they implementing it? But we do that to adults all the time, um, teachers specifically. Um, so I'm, I try to authentically live the things I advocate for. So I'm often working with district school systems, teachers, principals, superintendents to try to help reframe, advocate for new ways of thinking about leadership and how it's enacted. Wow, that's great. And have you seen movement on this in the work that you've, you've done within the school system? Let me say this. I think I've seen movement in the sense that when I started doing this work, particularly around reframing leadership and um, where women may sit within that system, it was harder to get traction on it, um, whether that be meaning people wanted to hear about it or thought it was important or would want to take a class or seminar about that. And it's really exploded for a variety of reasons, which are maybe a different conversation um, in recent years. I mean, no small doubt to like the Me Too movement and um, the Women's March and other things like that. But I think that there's a lot of power in people 
sort of being irreverent to it, like or questioning a system that isn't really working for everyone and using their voice and their their courage to say like it is important for me to be authentic and to stop a narrative that really makes teachers the villains or makes um, people working in schools the villains in this story um, because I know those people and they need opportunities to learn and grow and they're coming in and doing the best they can every day. So I have seen movement on that. Now, will that translate into like policy and systemic change? You know, maybe we can have this conversation again in a year or so. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, that's why I do the work, but I think like all big system changes, it takes a long time. I guess the popularity of Brene Brown too is probably an indication indicator that we're moving in kind of a, that kind of direction, hopefully. Yeah. What's the, what's the percentage of men versus women in leadership roles within K through 12 yeah. school systems? So at the, it depends where you're looking. So right now, I think it's a little bit more than half of the print. So it's important to start with this context, the pool Right. So to be a principal, you have to be a teacher and to be a superintendent, you have to be in a principal. So I just want to say that. Right. So it's a, there's a kind of a finite pool of people from which to pull. So as I said before, about 86, 87 percent of teachers are women, about 56 or 60 percent at this point, I think, of principals are women. Um, but that's not evenly distributed in the K-12. So elementary schools, I think it's more like 65, 67 percent and only around 30 something um, at the high school level. Hmm. And then I believe recent data, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think it's about 16% of superintendents in the United States are, are women. Wow. So, so we, there's like right. more administrative <laughs> roles that are men. And then when you get more into the school, the actual school, you're seeing. So higher. we have more teachers. So much. So, right. So like, if you think, if you inverse it, right. So you think about, okay, like, what would that be? 14% of teachers are men, but 84% of superintendents are men. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty stark. Yeah. Um, and then there's other data to tell you like the like how trajectories work, which are really, which is really fascinating. So like, um, I think a male teacher uh, moves into administration somewhere between four to six years. A woman takes about, I think, eight to 10 and black women, because I study black women within this context, I think something like on average, like 14 to 16 years. So, and the pathways look really different. So men often, like particularly for high school principals and things like that, they often move through athletics or other sort of like extracurricular leadership activities. And women usually move to leadership vis-a-vis -vis instructional coaching, um, working in the district in the special education department, other kinds of the, the, what I might say are more content rich um, kind of trajectories. So the disparities aren't just about numbers. It's also thinking about like how expertise is treated, um, who's getting tapped, giving the opportunity to exert leadership in formal ways or informal ways. Um, and the numbers, interestingly, the numbers in, um, professional programs like certification programs to give women access to being a superintendent or principal. Women actually make up a higher percentage now, I think, in those programs. So that tells you something about their yield rate um, in terms of like getting actually hired for some positions. Hmm. So it's not that they're not, they're not opting out. Um, they're not getting hired um, or they're not being tapped. So there's just a lot, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions and, and I think worthy of our attention. 
Um, there's also research to suggest that women um, in terms of their leadership tend to show some of those attributes that I was suggesting earlier might be really important in terms of moving people towards learning and development over time. So it's a, let's say right now, it's not a fully tapped resource um, within the system. I wonder also, you know, like how does salary come into this? Um, And then both within the actual education system, but then also when it comes to a woman being maybe being more willing to take a teacher job versus a man being willing to take that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, you've, you asked a really complex kind of multi-layered question. I mean, so if you haven't read Dana Goldstein, she's a New York times reporter on education. She wrote a book called the teaching wars, which is an absolutely fantastic book. I, I, I recommend it. I mean, my husband read it. Um, <laughs> uh, it's really the history of the teaching profession, but through, I would say like the lens of the feminization of the, of education. So it's not a surprise that women were most were mostly teachers and nurses, right? And that those are feminized professions and they're paid less than uh, other people who work in schools who have administrative posts, right? Like it's not a surprise that women are underpaid and also fulfill roles that have tra- traditionally been feminized. Mm. Um, so that's something very difficult to disentangle and important. So that's like part one, right? So you know, whether or not you wanted to be married and do that as sort of a secondary position, because the pay was so low, it would it would be hard for a single woman to fulfill, right, without a secondary income and live um, comfortably without having a secondary income, right? So that, you know, it, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and then there's information <clears throat> that as you move up to higher levels of administration within the education system, there's also not equal pay for equal work. So there's still pretty bad disparities, particularly at the superintendent level, between how much female superintendents are paid and how how much male superintendents are paid. Um, and we're looking, and that's even in places that are unionized. Um, uh, that's that's true at the at the principal level. We see really big disparities. Wow. And again, the higher you move up, um, the more the, the the bigger the disparities are. Um, so there's quite, you know, again, it's a complex issue, but you're absolutely right to point that out. I mean, recently, I don't know if you've followed this, but there's been strikes in Oklahoma, Kansas, other uh, Chicago, and this organization called Red for Ed. Um, and it's it's a grassroots organization that's really put pressure on the system to say, like, women are not paid and not, you know, people are teachers are not paid enough. But one of the reasons for that may, in fact, be because they're women. Um and that's important. Like this isn't this isn't a babysitting function, right? This is a professional job that requires skill um, and should be paid uh, commensurate with those skills. So well, I think you know, and maybe yeah. maybe this is where one of the ways that coronavirus leads to some positive change in the end. But I've seen some funny social media posts about people now that they have their kids home all the time are like, uh, my kid's teacher should be paid a million dollars a year. I know. I know. It's so, I, yeah, I, I love those. I also find them a little hard to swallow because I feel like the narrative so long has been around cutting money for schools um, and cutting teacher salaries. And I'm so glad, again, this is where I think about like compassion to act, to advocacy 
you know, like it's important that we realize that it would be, I think, more important that when, you know, a bond measure is is in our town to ensure that our school is well funded and our teachers are well paid, that we pay that, you know, that we advocate for that or that we, you know, we're we're dismayed at the fact that many teachers have to work two, three jobs just to make ends meet, right? That, that yeah. we would demand that not to be the case in America. You know, like in Oklahoma, one of my friends is there and, you know, they had so little money because they paid the, the way the tax structures work that their kids only go to school four days a week. Like, and that was a, like, that's a palatable solution. That's hard. That's hard. You know, that's wow. hard. So it's hard for me to hear, you know, again, I'm so pleased that people feel that way. And I, and I hope they will, I, but I hope they will, you know, they'll take that, they'll put that in their pocket and they'll, you know, bring it back out when they go to the ballot box. Yeah. What else do you think from this pandemic has potential to influence the systemic education system? I think people, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I, I hope let's make it hopes instead of thinks. Um, sure. <laughs> Cause I, I, I have no idea. I'm also, yeah. you know, East coast elite little bubble over here. Um, I do think one of the things that's happening at, and maybe is a little eye-opening for people um, is the ways in which schools have been asked to and tasked with serving as the primary hub for things like food, healthcare, mental health, well-being for families. Mm-hmm. Like our city school is still delivering three meals a day. Like people were frightened that their families would not eat once the schools closed. And that is not, you know, that is not just here. That's in oh, many yeah, places. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. That's here as well. Right. And so, I mean, did, you know, I think people kind of hear about it as an abstract or they think that that's happening in a different town. Right. Or they think it's happening somewhere else. And then you get, you are every day we get like updates from our school district and, you know, people to volunteer to like make sure food is ready for families. Um, and I hope that that says, wait a second, like what, why do we, why should a school be the center of making sure that children don't like starve that in, in America, you know, I mean, so I feel like maybe that will help. I definitely think, you know, thinking about under-resourced in terms of technology, you know, I'm thinking people will start to say, wait a second. Oh, like just having a Chromebook isn't enough, you know? Some of the e-learning that schools are promoting, not everybody has access Oh gosh, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, my son, my son had a, had a little chat with his friends and his teacher and, you know, probably a third showed up and it wasn't because they were too busy, right? (laughs) you know, and, you know, even my friend, my child, my friend is, comes from a wealthy family and she has four children. They're all supposed to be on school at the same time. So that's four devices. Mm Mm-hmm with full internet, right? Capabilities. So she has like a, you know, she has a, a third grader, a kindergartner, a preschooler, and like a second grader. Yeah. And they're all having school at the same time on a right. device. On a device. Yeah. Right. It, it'll be, it's, you know, the, particularly for the school systems that, you know, ours, for example, that shut down for the rest of the year, I know that this has been a big topic of conversation of, okay, how do we help these students complete the school year? What do we do about access? What do we do about equipping the parents with tools? And I I don't know if there's even a perfect solution for this that will actually reach everybody. 
Yeah, the Baltimore CEO was on NPR this morning, of CEO of public schools. And I thought she was really amazing. And again, this is what I think leadership is, which was like, she's like, this is not something that's precedented. We don't know. It's not good. And I think the best way to expend our energy, and I, you know, I'm, again, I'm not suggesting this is the right answer. It's just something I've been noodling on. But I think the energy that's being used to try to create something that's not really creatable right now could be used to try to think about how do we ensure the re-entry, the kids that need it the most, the kids that are, that are already vulnerable, the, the families that were vulnerable. How can we expend energy towards a plan, a systematic plan that will ensure that when we can serve them to the full function and our ability, we will be ready, right? Hmm. We will have the things in place so that when we welcome our children back, our teachers back, um, we have a good plan that that centers equity, that centers like access, that centers opportunity. So, but I mean, that's going to take planning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take thoughtfulness and it's going to take leadership to make to make that happen. Um, and I'm not sure the best use of people's time is trying to generate like a million worksheets um, over the next week or so to to make people feel a little, you know, a little more sane at the cost of the, of our most vulnerable families and and their needs, you know, so. Yeah, I think your recommendation is right on about that reentry and how do you level set at that point and get everybody back into the system because it will be it'll be a significant amount of time where these students and teachers are not in school. Yeah. Assuming that a lot of school systems are going to probably close for the remainder of the year. Right. Yeah. And and again, we just want to make sure that those those who were most impact and, and and that's not to suggest like I'm not impacted, you're not impacted, but again, our most vulnerable, the most vulnerable among us, um, don't have the kind of tra- it, it doesn't turn into a lifetime trauma, right? It can be something that was hard and difficult and we got through it, but to make it something that's going to define their future forever feels just I, I don't know how to say it any unfair. Any more. Yeah, I was gonna say not gr- not good. Yeah, <laughs> my eloquence is fading, <laughs> but I mean, you know, just 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 straight up wrong. You yeah. know, we can do better. Yes. we can do better. Definitely. Well, Jenny, it's been really fun to talk to you, and I know that. You probably have kids sitting in front of the TV. I have kids I sitting heard, in front of the yeah. TV. <laughs> I just um, heard my husband's voice. I bet I think the TV just got turned off but sa- safely. I know. No, it's always no, like, no, one more minute. Right. One more minute. No, no blow. No, it didn't come to blow. So I feel like we. everyone's a winner. Everyone's a winner. Right, right. Well, I want to just bring you to our end of podcast questions um, just to hear a couple more pieces of insight from you. So our podcast is called the Illuminate Podcast. And so we talk to people every week who are illuminating in their lives, but we always like to hear somebody who you think illuminates in their life or for you. So if you could share that, that'd be great. Yeah. I thank you for sending these to me because I was thinking about it and immediately, actually it's, it's my mom. Uh, Her name is Vicki Weiner, and she about I guess now maybe six or seven years ago, started a microfinancing um, fund for women entrepreneurs, first generation, many of them, women entrepreneurs in New York City, that's where they live. And it includes mentoring. Um, and during this time, she has just been incredible, checking in on all of the women that have gotten um, funding and making sure that they're okay and gathering resources to support them. And 
I just, I love her a lot. And I think she's pretty, pretty amazing. Oh, that's awesome. What is the fund called? It's called Wealth, W-E-A-L-F dot org. And um, it's, there's, if you, if anybody is feeling like they want to support small businesses, there's a list of the women entrepreneurs on there and they sell all sorts of delicious things and creams and things for your dog and also, and one of them actually just won an award and she's making, she does um, sewing classes for kids, but she's converted her whole studio into making masks. So she's been doing that. So it's just, you know, if you want to feel good and support a good, a good organization, wealth.org. Okay. I love that. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Oh, so nice. Thank you. Yeah. All right. A book recommendation. I know you gave us one book recommendation earlier, but I don't know <laughs> if you have another one as well. Yes. We'll link yes, both I of actually, those. Yes. Well, I always recommend Harry Potter because I'm a Harry Potter fiend. Um, but I would also recommend Year of Yes. If you haven't read it, um, Shonda Rhimes wrote it. And I, I often return back to it. One of my favorite parts, and actually probably why I was inspired to write the podcast, um, the, um, the op-ed was in it, she has this whole chapter about inevitably, if one part of her life is going well, something else is falling apart. And it was it was just such like a huge aha for me. It was like, oh, yeah, it is impossible to do everything um, great all the time. Thank you, Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> so it's a it's a great book. It's funny. It's smart. And um, and, and a it's good got reminder a really, for this yeah, season yeah. of life right now. Totally. So and if you get the if you do Audible, which I love, she reads it. So that's super fun, too. Oh, cool. That's awesome. And then, so our podcast was actually started from a supper club. So we love to eat and share recipes. And so we ask our guests to share a favorite recipe. Yes. I read that and laughed. I told my husband, do I have a favorite recipe? He's like, yeah, anything that I cook for you. <laughs> so your husband's <laughs> the chef in your family. Exactly. I, was okay. said, I, was said, I, I actually said, um, anything that I, that works on Grubhub is also something that I, <laughs> that's one of my favorite that's recipes. That's fair. <laughs> that's great. Um, and then lastly, Jenny, what is your message for the world? Yeah, I think today, at least, I think my message is one of engaged compassion. And what I mean by that is sort of like engaged in that self-compassion, start feeling like you're making mistakes to just try to love yourself through it and handle it with grace and not use energy that could go to forgiving yourself some to something else and that we engaged we get engaged in compassion for others and use that to push us towards advocacy and, and justice work when this is all behind us thank you so much jenny for this real conversation and for helping us think about how the school system has been impacted by this Thanks everyone for tuning in to the Illuminate podcast. We hope that you are staying healthy. And as always, you can follow us on Instagram at the Illuminate podcast. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks. And we'll talk to you next week.